The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the ballad of Hollywood Jack and the Rage Cage. And Hollywood Jack hit the big time and went to make movies. From iHeartRadio, the Based on True Events anthology. We chronicle true events in the Hollywood tradition. That is to say, adhering to the facts, as long as the facts don't get in the way of a good story. First up, The Don, the definitive 24-episode podcast series on Hollywood producer Don Simpson. He was a Hollywood showman. I'd rather spend 10 minutes with Don Simpson. Controversy, lunacy, fun, tragedy. The idea that Don was going to die was not that shocking. Don, slow down. Stop. You're just human. That was Hollywood journalist Kim Masters, composer Hans Zimmer, and Don Simpson's publicist Peggy Siegel. Of course, Don, the blockbuster producer of Hollywood hits like Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, and Top Gun, and whose films define the culture in Hollywood and across America for a decade and the decades to come, never did slow down. John Taylor at New York Magazine noted the two central figures that most defined the spirit of the 1980s were President Ronald Reagan and Donald Clarence Simpson. I would add that only one of these men had a penile implant. What you are about to hear is a tragic tale. And I'm not talking about the penile implant, which, as you might have guessed, went horribly wrong. This is a story as epic as Citizen Kane. Or, more aptly, Citizen Cocaine. You know the Goodfellas scene with the helicopters and stirring the pasta sauce? Don Simpson lit that sort of chaos on a daily basis. It was a life centered around one thing. Speed. Don survived numerous car crashes, including one where he crashed his Ferrari into Promise's rehab facility. Don reportedly got out of the car shouting, Who moved the gates? If it wasn't speed, it was guns. When a new writer would come over for script notes... Don would wait for him on the roof of his mansion in his underwear, the red light of his AK-47 targeted on the unsuspecting writer's forehead. Don was nuts, gonzo, manic, intimidating. And yet, it was all calculated to create a persona. The persona of the Don. And the Don would grow in epic proportions. 
Don's story was a classic, reinvention and myth. What Gatsby's excess was to the 20s, Don's was to the 80s. And it could have only happened at a certain time and place in history. Once upon a time in Hollywood, the 1980s, lifestyles of the rich and reckless. How did Don get away with this behavior? Money. Money he made for others and money he spent on himself. While at Paramount, he oversaw the production of Grease, Saturday Night Fever, and American Gigolo. And then he face-planted into a bowl of soup at a shareholders meeting. He'd been on a three-day drug bender. Paramount fired him, but also gave him a movie deal. His next three films? Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, and Top Gun. Those six films cost a combined $50 million. They made $1.6 billion. Back in the 1980s, Don's behavior wasn't just tolerated, it was encouraged. The industry gave Don a long leash for his high-class call girls, his alliance with the Vatican-connected Italian mob, the private eye that cleaned up his car crashes and illicit firearm schemes, the Dr. Feelgoods on retainer, the expense accounts for exotic cars and private jets and ski party orgies in Aspen. Don's black market ties were an open secret inside Hollywood. And it was Don's black market connections that led to his tragic death. Our series is a docudrama, mostly fact mixed with a bit of fiction. And so we created Pierce Benton. Pierce is a fictionalized composite of the journalists that covered Don. Pierce is our way in, our guide. We follow him as he shines the light on Don's legacy and tragedy. Now, much of Don's story happened just as we're telling it. And some events, well, perhaps didn't happen, but very well could have happened. The end result is a story that captures the spirit of Don, the essence, the meaning of Don. Some might view Don's story as a comedy, others a tragedy or a cautionary tale. For us, Don's story is a story to be told for anybody that loved movies as much as Don did. Don's passion for movies took over his life. They were not just his escape, they were his salvation. He lived for the movies, and ultimately, he died for them. Death, if it's going to visit me, I hope it comes in the night and just strikes me down. We begin episode one, at the end. It's January 21st, 1996, on a dry, windblown Los Angeles winter evening, two days after Don Simpson's shocking death at the age of 52. We're outside Morton's a restaurant where only Hollywood's power players can reserve a table. On this night, they're queued up to mourn the passing of their dear friend, Don. There's one guy standing in line trying to crash the party. This would be Pierce. A quick disclaimer, Pierce is a journalist who records everything on his tape recorder, specifically... The ultra-compact Pearl Corder L400. It was a tiny recorder with a classy look that made it a favorite of private investigators in the 1980s which allowed him to record in all sorts of public places. Here's his recording from that night. I'm standing in line outside a private event at Morton's for the wake of Hollywood mega-producer Don Simpson. Just hours earlier, the Los Angeles coroner's office had issued a statement finding that Don Simpson had died of natural causes. That first coroner's report indeed stated that Don had died of natural causes. But a second coroner's report several weeks later stated that Don's corpse was, and this is a direct quote, the most toxic corpse in the history of California autopsy. 
that was some tidy work by the coroner. We can go with natural causes, or we can really get in there and discover we're looking at the most toxic corpse ever. Now, back to Pearson line. The Morton's door gentleman is holding a clipboard with the names of invitees. The line is chopped head to toe in black Prada. I tense my sweat-soaked cravat. I vow to take it off as soon as I get to the toilet. The door gentleman can't find my name on the list. Pierce had spied the famous composer Hans Zimmer entering the restaurant. Hans composed maybe the greatest soundtrack ever for the movie True Romance. He wrote that song with the bells in Patricia Arquette's Alabama saying to Christian Slater's Clarence, You're so cool. That three words went through my mind endlessly, repeating themselves like a broken record. You're so cool. You're so cool. You're so cool. I call out Hans with a wave. Hans reluctantly waves back. Clearly he has no clue who I am. Security seems to move more quickly now and checks my name off the list. I'm inside. I'm now in the toilet. The head honchos are all here. Jeffrey Katzenberg, Michael Eisner, Barry Diller, a galaxy of stars. I don't wish to name drop, but Warren is here and Michelle, Will Smith, John Lovitz. We cross-checked the list of guests. All the guests were reportedly there. But for Mr. Lovitz... There's Steve Tish and his group, the Young Turks of CAA, Sherry Lansing, Dawn Steele, Linda Obst, all of them working the room. I'm struck by the conviviality. Meant to be a memorial tribute for their dear friend and colleague, feels more like another night at Morton's. People doing business as they're accustomed to. Pierce returned to the dining room just as the lights turned down, and a movie screen drops with a video tribute. There was Don in his signature motorcycle jacket with his arm around the movie star Tom Cruise. A montage kicks in, featuring Don on movie sets. With his Rick Springfield locks and deep Navajo tan, Don looked more like a movie star than the movie stars. It was like watching Forrest Gump with Don suddenly appearing in all of your favorite movies. With John Travolta on the Verrazano Bridge filming Saturday Night Fever. with the gang on the set of Grease. In Malta, with Robin Williams filming Popeye. I'm Popeye, the sailor. With Paramount chief Charlie Bluthorn meeting Fidel Castro in Cuba to discuss a Bad News Bears remake. You know how many pools I gotta clean to get you a pair of ported jeans? What's the matter with American jeans? I don't like them. What do you think you are, catfish hunter? Who's he? Don with Henry Kissinger. Don at the Pentagon pitching Top Gun. Good pilot is compelled to always evaluate what's happening so he can apply what he's learned. Up there, we gotta push it. Don with Richard Pryor. Don with Eddie Murphy. Don with Will Smith. Don was everywhere. This had to have been the most ego-driven vanity reel in the history of Hollywood memorials. If the photos weren't proof enough of Don's place in pop culture, the narration left no doubt as to Don's impact. The narration sounded as if it had been dictated by Don before he died. And, in fact, it had. A man who came from nothing and changed the world. Don Simpson. Visionary filmmaker. American icon. Warrior poet. 
frontier philosopher, Blockbuster King. The absurdity was not lost on the guests laughing at Don, mocking a dead man's vanity reel. It was all very Sunset Boulevard, Joe Gillis narrating while his dead body floats in the pool. The tribute climaxes with the words of Don. I was a dreamer who believed my dreams could change the world. Here's the thing. If you don't like your reality, create a new one. After the movie reel ended, Pierce moved about the room, hoping to gather intel about Don's last days. But the crowd was surprisingly boisterous. Many of them appeared to be having a jolly old time. Don was dead, and yet nobody seemed to care. And hadn't they heard the rumors? Especially after what happened with Don's doctor just six months ago. Six months ago, the death of Don's doctor, Dr. Peter Fraser, sent shockwaves through Hollywood. Dr. Pete died in Don's pool house. At the time, Don and his doctor were working on a movie script called Shapeshifter about an Alaskan hunter who dies and comes back to life as a Kodiak bear. Or maybe it was the bear who died and comes back as the man. This was Don's passion project. He was still making big studio films at the time, but his heart wasn't in it. He wanted to act and direct. And most of all, he longed to go home to Alaska, where Shapeshifter would be filmed. From 1995 up until Dr. Pete's death in 1996, Don and his doctor were pretty much inseparable. They had met at Gold's Gym in Venice Beach. Don was pumping iron and was impressed with Dr. Pete's abs. There was something different about Dr. Pete. It wasn't just his rock-hard abs, it was his energy, his confidence, his intensity. It turned out, Dr. Pete was juiced on a self-prescribed cocktail of stimulants and supplements. As Don listened to Dr. Pete's vast knowledge of medicine and the human body, Don immediately signed on to Dr. Pete's fitness regimen. In exchange for Dr. Pete's services, Don offered to read one of Pete's scripts. A few months later, Dr. Pete had moved into Don's guest house. As they worked long hours on their movie project, they both became more and more obsessed with Dr. Pete's treatments. Don believed he had found the fountain of youth. This was an opportunity to not only feel young again, but to stop the aging process altogether. Now, under Dr. Pete's care, Don was dedicated to pumping iron, human growth hormones, and the strict pill regimen that Dr. Pete had prescribed. The problem for Don was that nobody was monitoring Dr. Pete's pill intake. After Dr. Pete died, Don went into hiding and nobody, not Don's assistants or Dr. Pete's girlfriend or anybody on the pre-production team of Shapeshifter, would talk. And the press, thankfully for Don, left it alone. They were more concerned about another famous pool house guest and another death involving a famous Simpson. Pierce was worried about his friend. Having your personal doctor overdose in the shower of your pool house was a warning sign that you need to get healthy. And maybe Don would have gotten healthy and come out of hiding if it weren't for the Dr. Feelgoods who quickly moved in. Like vultures, they saw their opportunity to keep Don hooked on the very pills that Dr. Pete had prescribed. All of this history with Dr. Pete was running through Pierce's mind as we returned to Pierce at the wake. Pierce felt sad and helpless and angry at himself that he didn't try to intervene. Could somebody have saved Don? Nobody in this room, thought Pierce. Pierce drifted over to the photo tribute board where there was a table of photos commemorating Don's life. Man, he was a handsome guy, Pierce thought. An outdoorsman 
a world-class skier, a motorcycle enthusiast. Pierce suddenly felt the urge to take one of the photos, a memory of the great man. Pierce tried to be discreet, so as not to attract attention, he swiped the nearest photo off the table. It was at this moment that Pierce became aware that someone was watching him. I've drawn both the attention and ire of whom appears to be a very important woman. She moves briskly between A-listers as if she's on a timer, her clock set to schmooze. I can't tell if she's doing business or thanking people for coming, but it is clear she's in charge. Who is she? Don's girl? His secretary? His sister? Niece? Cousin? For now, we'll call her the woman from Morton's. Pierce makes a hasty exit. Standing outside Morton's, he examines the photo of Don. It's shocking to Pierce how much Don's face had changed. The photo reveals one too many facelifts. As Pierce describes him, He's jowly. The surgeon's work can't mask the deep crevasses of tightened skin from cheek to chin. His hair is greased back in a short ponytail, and he's wearing sunglasses. No accessory can hide the massive girth. He's fat exceedingly fat this is Don Simpson not the Don Simpson featured on every other photograph on his memorial tribute board this one snuck in and sticks out like a hideous grotesque if this was an actual journalistic investigation into Don's death Pierce might conclude that he had found a clue in the photo of fat Don it was evident from the photo that Don's weight gain was brought on quickly unnaturally What was also evident was that the photo appeared to have been taken on a movie set. He was able to identify a well-known character actor standing behind Don at the monitors. Pierce, being a big movie buff, was almost certain the actor behind Don was the great Philip Baker Hall. He's not going to hit the streets, Jim. 30 years ago, he was a highly trained SAS operative. He is my age now, for Christ's sake. I have to get up three times a night to take a piss. Don had sold The Rock off his signature high-concept one-sentence pitch. We're going to wade into shark-infested waters to break not out of, but into Alcatraz. He would not live to see the film's completion. Pierce looks again at the photo. He questions why he feels so much empathy for the man. It's the obesity. The weight tells him two things. This is a man with tremendous self-loathing and tremendous appetite for consumption. In this industry, the big hitters, the Dillers, the Igers, the Katzenbergs, with their trim waistlines and their rigorous self-discipline, must be immune to those vulnerabilities. But Don was not immune. Don was vulnerable. Don was a dreamer, completely at the mercy of his dreams. Pierce had a hard time sleeping that night. He was staying at the Beverly Laurel Motel above Swingers, the all-night hipster coffee shop. He woke up late the next morning and reached for the photo of Fat Don on his bedside table. For Pierce, the photo was proof that last night wasn't a mirage. He went down to Swingers for a cup of coffee and a Denver omelet and set out for the day. His destination? I need a paramedic at 685 Stone Canyon Road. The estate of Don Simpson. Don's house was just a few doors down from his favorite hangout, the Bel Air Hotel. At over 10,000 square feet, the nine-bathroom home is currently valued at $24 million. I ring Don's buzzer, and Don's housekeeper, Fiorina, answers. Hello? I'm Sam Runkle from Citywide Insurance. I'd phoned the house an hour earlier. 
I was contracted by the real estate's assessor's office to assess the house of the deceased for the county tax records. Assuming the house is to go into probate and there is no kin to claim the estate, it is up to L.A. County to make the assessment. I start to actually believe the spiel myself. And before Fiorina can respond, I give her a time as to when I will be dropping by. She buzzes me in. The house has the opulence of Citizen Kane's Xanadu, if Kane had kept firing his contractors. There is abandoned construction everywhere. It's hard to tell what is being built and what's being torn down. Rooms not under construction are packed with movie memorabilia, screenplays and movie posters, newspaper headlines. One is entitled, A Visionary Alliance, Paramount's $500 million deal with Don Simpson. I'm now in Don's velveted seated 20-row screening room. There's a vintage popcorn machine. I press the button. To my surprise, out comes fresh popcorn. A movie is projected on the screen. The frame is frozen. On screen, a circus clown is under arrest. I recognize the film, The Greatest Show on Earth with Jimmy Stewart. Why this film? Why this scene with the clown? Did Don have a clown fascination? I've tripped over the carpet. I find a security sensor. I move to the hallway, more security sensors. Who was Don protecting himself from? Into a guest bedroom. The bed has been made. All appears spotlessly clean by Fiorina. Moving on, I stop on what looks like a grapefruit-sized ball gag. And a chrome butt plug displayed on a mantle like a Giacometti. They're blended into the decor, as if Fiorina had dusted and polished them like any other furnishing. In the closet, homemade videos dated in marker, scattered geisha porn, Japanese sex anime, another closet... Oils and lubricants and dildos. Lots of dildos. Pierce had seen enough. In my years covering Don, I'd known him to be quite the man about town, but never was I a witness to such perversions. The curated volume and variety of sex toys did not reflect an addiction, but something far more sinister. On the move now, into a massive bathroom, large enough to live in, and it appears that someone has. I'm looking at an all-black bathroom. The tile is onyx black vanity marble. The wallpaper, black print. The mirrors, black framed. On the floor, jars of Peter Pan peanut butter. Bottles of Chateau Latour. Takeout Chinese from Mr. Chow's. Variety packs of cereal. Sugar corn pops. Apple jacks. Cocoa crisps. Was this how Don died? living in the bathroom in his final days, unable to escape himself in the mirrored walls? Did he die an obese recluse with a greasy ponytail and the fat crevasses of plastic surgery? Or did he die the Don, the Don that Pierce once knew, the dynamic rock and roll movie star producer cut down in his prime, plotting his latest comeback? I lie on my back on the floor, imagining that I am Don stuck in his bathroom, surrounded by the mess around him. Something feels eerily wrong. The floor is not messy as such as appearing messy, like an installation, as if somebody had arranged the wine bottles and peanut butter jars and Chinese food boxes. Nalo, Pierce had accidentally hit the intercom leaning against the wall. Fiorina comes upstairs immediately. He can't stay here any longer, she said. 
Behind her, in the doorway, the woman from Morton's. Without makeup and the fancy Prada pantsuit, the woman looks completely pedestrian. A plain Jane dog walker sort who prefers the company of animals to people. But it's her, all right. The very important woman from Morton's. Her stare just as intense as when she caught me swiping the fat Don photo. She asked me who I am. I say, I'm a journalist. I covered Don in a series of articles back in the 80s. But before I can finish, she goes over to the locked cabinet, unlocks it, and takes out what looks to be an M4 automatic rifle. There is something in her eyes which makes me believe she might shout, yippee ki motherfucker, and pump me full of lead. I am not off base. I notice in the mirror a red target trained on my forehead reflected off the scope of the gun. She tells me I'm trespassing. Pierce leaves the woman his room number at the Beverly Laurel Motel. He leaves before she can call the police. There's something in the woman's threats. It wasn't the long gun that she pointed at him. Pierce knew that was all just for show. But there was something in the woman's eyes. In that moment, he knew two things. One, she didn't want Pierce looking into what happened to Don. And two, that something nefarious did happen to Don. Listen to The Don on the iHeartRadio Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be issuing disclaimers at the end of each episode. For those who wish to hear the story without being told what was fiction, we suggest you might want to avoid the disclaimers. For those who are curious as to what was fictionalized, here are the disclaimers. First disclaimer, our journalist Pierce. As we noted at the top of the show, Pierce is a fictionalized creation. All of Pierce's travels and encounters are dramatizations. They are a means to draw us closer to what Don might have experienced in his final days. They also serve to help understand why Don's bad behavior was not only tolerated, but encouraged by many in the film business. Second disclaimer, the wake at Morton's. Don, according to reports, was celebrated by the industry with many heartfelt tributes. Pierce obviously did not attend the wake, but the wake did happen with a buzzy celebrity list of invitees. There wasn't a sizzle reel of Don's greatest hits produced by Don celebrating Don's genius. That was our creative license. But there was apparently a short tribute reel directed by Les Mayfield, who coincidentally directed Will McCormick, the EP of our series in the film American Outlaws. How's that for six degrees of separation? In dramatizing Don's sizzle reel, we thought, how would Don have scripted his own movie? Don was known as the architect of the 80s movie three-act formula, where the hero gets a shot at redemption and a final freeze-frame shot of victory. But of course, Don was very much an anti-hero. We would guess he would have been quite depressed on seeing his life on the screen, a rise and fall tragedy without redemption. His freeze-frame moment was lying dead on the floor of his bathroom. Third disclaimer, Don did have a doctor who died in his pool house. In our series, he is the fictionalized Dr. Pete. Dr. Pete is inspired by Don's relationship with Dr. Stephen Ammerman. If Don had scripted his biopic, we would guess his act two all-is-lost moment was when Don loses his friend and doctor in a tragic overdose in Don's pool house. The real-life Dr. Ammerman was by all accounts a brilliant doctor. He ran the emergency room at Beverly Hills Medical Center. He was a businessman with several medical patents, attracting interest from big medical companies. But more than anything, he wanted to make movies. The movie he was absolutely obsessed with making was called The Legend of Kodiak, a story about a Kodiak bear who was killed by poachers and is reborn as a man. 
Ammerman had plans to make a billion-dollar epic with tie-ins for merchandise, VHS sales, and vitamins. Not sure how the vitamins factor in. If you're getting a disaster artist vibe, you're not far off. Throughout the series, we will be recreating the behind-the-scenes of Don and Dr. A's Kodiak Bear movie. Disclaimer 4. Pierce exploring Don's house. Don's live-in maid Fiorina is fictionalized. We do know that Don had a butler of sorts who was said to have once been former special ops and who would become Don's bodyguard during his paranoid delusional phase when he thought the mob was after him. Disclaimer 5. Don's former assistant, the woman at Morton's, is fictitious. We do know that Don had many assistants, including one that he hired for the sole purpose of watching him while he slept so that he wouldn't die in his sleep. We're not sure how anyone can prevent someone from dying in their sleep. But that was the job description. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.